0: Welcome to the Skin Depth Podcast, where we deliver the latest in dermatology research directly to you. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Skin Depth Podcast. This is one of your hosts, Caden Carver, back with you today. And first, before we begin, we hope you've all enjoyed a very happy holiday season and that your 2024 is off to a healthy and productive start for you and for all your loved ones. Thanks for spending time with us here today. We're going to discuss more of the latest dermatology research for you, and today we'll focus on the increased incidence of acne with JAK inhibitor use, hyperbaric oxygen therapy combined with IV sodium thiosulfate for patients with calciphylaxis, dermatologic management of patients with hidradenitis superativa as prevention for surgical excision, and UVA light dermoscopy for visualizing mite ecology in human skin. We'll also feature the work of a fellow medical student researcher, Victoria Slavinsky, and her investigation into the impact of chronic solar UV radiation for those in outdoor industries. If you stick around for the whole episode, we will again test your knowledge with the New England Journal of Medicine Question of the Week and the Dermoscopy Question of the Week. Without further ado, let's jump right into it for the first Skin Death Podcast episode of the new year. The first article for this episode is entitled "Janus Kinase Inhibitors and Adverse Events of Acne: A Systematic Review and Meta Analysis." This article was published in JAMA Dermatology by Martinez et al. December first of twenty twenty three. In this study, researchers aimed to analyze the risk of acne as an adverse effect of JAK inhibitor use. To do this, they conducted a systematic review and meta analysis of twenty five phase two and three randomized controlled trials, including 10,839 patients. Following the study, researchers reported a pooled odds ratio for acne after JAK inhibitor use of 3.83 with a 95% confidence interval of 2.76 to 5.32. The odds ratio for acne was 13.47 with abracitinib, 4.96 with baricitinib, 4.79 4.79 with upadacitinib, 2.64 with decravacitinib, and 3.30 with durexalitinib. All were significant with a 95% confidence interval. Limitations to this study included the possibility of misdiagnosis of acne, non-reporting of improvement in pre-existing acne, and limitation of results by the original limitations of the included studies. The main takeaway from this article is that there may be an elevated odds of developing acne associated with JAK inhibitor use. Because of this, patients should be counseled appropriately prior to beginning therapy with JAK inhibitors. The second article for today is entitled, A Retrospective Review of Outcomes After Hyperbaric Oxygen Therapy for the Treatment of Calciphylaxis." This article is published in JAD electronically in August 2023 by Biglioni et al. The retrospective cohort study of 93 patients aimed to compare outcomes of patients with calciphylaxis treated with hyperbaric oxygen therapy, also known as HBOT, and IV sodium thiosulfate, also known as IVSTS, with patients treated with IVS, IVSTS only. Primary outcomes were all-cause mortality, calciphylaxis specific mortality, and wound healing of the primary lesion. 57 control group patients were treated with IV STS only, while 36 treatment group patients were treated with HBOT combined with IV STS. Following the study, researchers reported that HBOT was associated with a significantly longer survival time compared to standard therapy with IV STS only. This was significant with a p-value of 0.016. A higher number of HBOT sessions was associated with a decreased hazard ratio for mortality with the hazard ratio for mortality of 0.961 after 1 session, 0.819 after 5 sessions, 0.671 after 10 sessions, and 0.451 after 20 sessions. There was also a significant positive relationship between number of HBOT sessions and increased wound healing score, with wound healing score increasing by 0.03 units with each additional HBOT session. This was significant with a p-value of 0.042. Most common adverse events associated with HBOT were anxiety and claustrophobia both were reported in 22.2% of patients. The data in this study was limited by the retrospective nature of the study, as well as sample size. The main takeaway from this study is that HPOT therapy combined with IV STS was associated with improved mortality and wound healing in patients with calciphylaxis. Our next article, entitled The Management of Pediatric Hydradenitis Separativa Differs Between Dermatologic and Non-Dermatologic Providers, A Retrospective Review, was published in Pediatric Dermatology, November 28, 2023, by Atherton et al. The retrospective cohort study of 195 pediatric patients with hydradenitis separativa, also known as HS aimed to understand the presentation, management, and outcomes of HS in patients under 20 years old by comparing outcomes between patients treated primarily by dermatologists compared to other providers. Following the study, researchers reported that 76.1% of patients were seen by dermatology at least once, with referrals coming from pediatrics in 43.2%, and family medicine in 15.1% of cases. In the dermatology-managed group, there was a higher prevalence of family history of HS compared to patients managed by other providers at 17.1% compared to 4.3%. There was also a greater prevalence of dermatologic comorbidities, namely acne, in the dermatology-managed group compared to patients managed by other providers At 36.1% compared to 8.5%. Patients with HS managed primarily by a dermatologist were more likely than those managed by other providers to have documentation of Hurley staging at 46.9% compared to 12.0% and documentation of presence of inflammatory nodules 44.2% compared to 19.1% and scarring at 39.5% compared to 8.8.5% at the most recent visit. Dermatology-managed patients had higher rates of axillary at 51% compared to 27.7% and groin 30.6% compared to 8.5% involvement compared to those managed by other providers. Dermatology-managed patients were more likely to use chlorhexidine gluconate, benzoyl peroxide, doxycycline, and topical clindamycin than patients managed by non-dermatology providers. Additionally, dermatology-managed patients were more likely to be prescribed topical medications at 83.6% versus 31.3%, oral antibiotics at 53.7% compared to 12.5%, other systemic treatments at 27.6% compared to 3.1%, and biologics at 19.7% versus 0% compared to patients managed by non-dermatologic providers. Researchers also reported that dermatology-managed patients were less likely to undergo surgical excision at 13.3% compared to 25.5% with a p-value of 004 and had longer median duration of management at 7.3 months compared to 0.0, or excuse me, 0.77 months, compared to those not managed by a dermatologist. The main takeaways from this study include that patients managed primarily by a dermatologist are more likely to receive medical management, suggesting that surgery may be avoided with optimal medical management and highlighting how education of non-dermatology providers on HS can optimize disease management. Our Derm Innovation article for today, entitled Glittering Trail, Feces of Scabies Indicated by High Power Field Dermatoscopy Using UVA Light, was published in JAD electronically, June 8th, 2023, by Fujimoto et al. Researchers hypothesized that UVA light would allow visualization of both endogenous and exogenous fluorescence patterns, enabling scabies mites and burrows to be detected in vivo. Researchers noted that scabies burrows may be visualized with the application of UVA light, which may further clarify the traits of the burrows. Mite feces were visualized as yellowish deposits within burrows under UVA light. The body and eggs of scabies mites were visualized more clearly in burrows at increased magnification in UVA light compared to white light. The main takeaway from this article is that UVA light with dermatoscope can be an effective tool for visualizing sarcoptes scabii mites in human skin. Now, we're very excited to feature the work of a fellow medical student researcher, Victoria Slavinsky. Victoria is a medical student at Georgetown University School of Medicine who is currently completing a research year in cutaneous T-cell lymphoma at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Victoria and her team conducted a PubMed-based systematic literature review to address questions regarding UV radiation measurement, the utility of the UV index, and the prevalence of solar lentigines in non-melanoma skin cancers in individuals with outdoor occupations following the review Victoria and her team reported that outdoor workers often faced cumulative solar radiation or s UVR that surpasses safety thresholds for occupational settings these persons cumulative lifetime UVR exposure is higher leading to increased prevalence of non melanoma skin cancers and precursor lesions Limitations of this study included that the role of the individual patient characteristics like family history of skin cancer, Fitzpatrick skin type, number of moles, and history of sunburns in adolescence need to be considered and improved methods for cumulative UV solar radiation measurement are required. The main takeaway from this study is that the evidence-based assessment substantiates the need for improved counseling and educational campaigns on promoting sun protective behaviors among individuals with outdoor occupations regular implementation of practices such as wearing protective clothing wide-brimmed hats uv protective sunglasses and the avoidance of peak uv intensity hours is essential especially in outdoor workers thank you so much for sharing victoria We wish you all the best in your pursuits in the future and hope that our listeners can be inspired and also learn a little bit from you sharing with us today. Now we're going to move on to the New England Journal of Medicine question of the week for this week. A 53-year-old woman presented with a three-month history of worsening vascular skin lesions and a one-month history of a fever. On physical examination, diffuse telangiectasias, Hyperpigmented plaques and several ulcerated nodules were observed on the skin across the chest and abdomen as well as the legs. No palpable lymphadenopathy or hepatosplenomegaly were noted. Laboratory studies were notable for a lactate dehydrogenase level of 35,664 units per liter with a reference range of 120 to 250. A deep skin biopsy specimen from the abdomen showed intravascular aggregation of around atypical lymphocytes on H&E staining. Subsequent immunohistochemical staining was positive for CD20, PAX-5, and MUM-1 in the neoplastic cells. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it one, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, two, cutaneous small vessel vasculitis, 3. Idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease. 4. Intralymphatic histiocytosis. Or 5. Intravascular lymphoma. The answer is 5. Intravascular lymphoma. Intravascular lymphoma is a rare B cell lymphoma which typically has systemic involvement, such as neurologic deficits with CNS involvement. The disease is very challenging to diagnose due to nonspecific symptoms and signs as well as varied presentations in the skin you can see purple patches and plaques most commonly on the trunk and thighs on histopathology you will see large atypical cd20 positive b cell lymphocytes within the vessels to discuss the other answers number one chronic lymphocytic leukemia this can have presentations in the skin such as violaceous papules and nodules of leukemia cutis, but would not stain for B-cell markers such as CD20 or PAX-5. Number two, cutaneous small vassal vasculitis. This presents most classically with palpable purpura. However, histopathology consists of perivascular neutrophilic infiltrate with leukocytoclasis, fibrin deposition, vascular damage, and red blood cell extravasation. Three, idiopathic multicentric Castleman. Castleman's disease is an uncommon B-cell lymphoproliferative disorder, which presents with significant lymphadenopathy. Cutaneous involvement in Castleman disease is rare. Castleman's is most common cause of perineoplastic pemphigus in children. This may be high yield for board examinations. Choice four, intralymphatic histiocytosis. This is a rare reactive cutaneous condition characterized by macrophage accumulation in dermal lymphatic vessels. It typically presents as an asymptomatic pink, red, or violaceous macule or thin plaques on the extremity. On histopathology, there'll be dilated or ectatic lymphatic vessels with positive CD68 histiocytes in the lumen and vessel staining with D240. All right, great work everyone who completed that question and got it right. And even if you didn't get it right, hopefully you're able to learn a little bit. I know I definitely was when reviewing for this. So now we'll move on to the dermoscopy question of the week for this week. So obviously it's a little bit tough as always to you know visualize these dermatoscopic findings. So I'll do my best to kind of describe them and hopefully you can start to envision um, these findings in your head, and you know then when you get out into clinicals, be able to recognize the real deal um, when you see these dermatoscopic findings in real life. So, today you have an a uh, lesion that demonstrates asymmetry of shape, structures, and colors, atypical broadened pigment network. It also has light brown, dark brown, gray red and white coloration within the lesion and blue gray structures which also may be described as a blue white veil all on dermoscopy so what is the next step in diagnosis of this lesion is it one nothing just provide reassurance two biopsy three nothing and just proceed with empiric treatment via cryotherapy Or four, send to infectious disease for further diagnosis. So the answer is going to be choice two, biopsy. This lesion is very concerning for melanoma based on the dermatoscopic findings we provided and therefore should be biopsied for further evaluation. The dermatoscopic features can vary depending on the subtype of melanoma present, but today we're going to focus on the superficial spreading subtype. It is the most common subtype and first grows in width and then grows vertically um, with downward spread, which can result in increased invasion and metastasis. As we described, the features commonly seen on dermoscopy for superficial spreading melanoma include asymmetry of shape, structures, and colors, an atypical broadened pigment network, three or more colors, such as light brown, dark brown, black, blue, gray, red, or white, and also blue-gray structures, which may be described as a blue-white veil, all on dermoscopy. There are many other specific dermatoscopic findings of melanoma, and I encourage you to look up some pictures, look up some other charts and tables online to help you begin to recognize these features, um, but we won't cover them more in depth in this podcast episode, but definitely very high yield to be able to recognize the dermatoscopic findings of the various subtypes of melanoma. Well, that's all we have for you today. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in for another episode of the Skin Depth Podcast. We hope that in addition to getting exposure to more of the latest dermatology research, you're also able to test your knowledge and learn a few things with the New England Journal of Medicine and Dermoscopy Questions of the Week, um, as well as to see how possible it is to conduct research as a medical student. Hopefully this um, episode and what we shared with our student Spotlight will inspire you and guide your future research endeavors, um, both as a medical student and a future dermatology provider. We really hope that you have a great and productive week and you know best of luck in all that you're doing. If you have any suggestions or you know things you'd like to see improved with the podcast, please reach out to us. Let us know via email. Also, you can follow our Instagram, Twitter, and other social media pages for uh, content similar to this podcast. And definitely check out our website at skindepthderm.com. Thanks so much again for tuning in to this episode of the Skin Depth Podcast, and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Skin Depth Podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Please send us any questions or comments to info at skindepthderm.com. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.